the El Pilot's Plain Tales. The Eager Beavers. It was an unpopular aircraft because, well, when you're flying in the Second World War, a lot of aircrew were superstitious. They were renowned for carrying lucky charms, doing things a certain way, and never daring to change the habit because it worked for them last time. Some wouldn't wash their lucky socks or underwear to the dismay of their flying companions, but luckily at high altitude everyone was on oxygen. This machine was a B-17 nicknamed Old 666, taken from the last three digits of its tail number, 412666. Any damage done during missions, and there was quite a bit over the years, just strengthened the feelings that this was an unlucky ship. That was until a remarkable pilot and his loyal crew came along. Jay Zima was initially commissioned into the Infantry Reserve, but he always had a dream of flying, so he transferred into the Army Air Corps. He desperately wanted to become a pilot, and he partially fulfilled that dream, except he didn't pass the flying test that would qualify him for the pilot's seat. Instead, he ended up stuck as a co-pilot on Marauders. He went along with it, he had little alternative, and after flying on anti-submarine and reconnaissance patrols off the west coast of California, he was deployed to Australia but he was still assessed as having issues with slow reaction times and a lack of aggressiveness on the controls. Promoted to lieutenant, he applied for a transfer to the 43rd Bombardment Unit in a little Australian town called Torrens Creek in Queensland. There was little to be said of this small settlement. It had a few inhabitants and still today only 70, one pub and was nearly 1,000 miles north of the state capital, Brisbane. Jay Zima was assigned to the 403rd Squadron and onto the B-17. Unqualified on the Flying Fortress, he had to act as the squadron errand boy before he could even scrounge flights as a substitute co-pilot or navigator. He did well when, on one trip, he had to take over from the first pilot and carry on with the mission. His coolness under fire earned him the Silver Star for his actions and also served as his first pilot checkout. Zima was considered a bit of a renegade and he began to gather a like-minded crew around him who reflected his no-nonsense attitude but this didn't stop them from being a highly effective band of fighting men. Jay was the sort of man who hung around operations looking for opportunities to fly on every mission that came available until he and his crew were nicknamed the Eager Beavers. In his spare time, he put his crew through their paces with extra practice like shooting at logs in the water, stripping and reassembling the big guns blindfolded and learning the duties of other crew members so that they could take over should someone be injured. Pretty soon, this kind of leadership began to sort the chaff from the wheat as those who found the extra training too arduous moved elsewhere. Pretty soon, Zima and his friend Joe Sarnowski felt that they had the makings of a good crew, men who were capable and keen to fight, 
Their expectations were proved right, and to a man they were practical and easy-going, not brash, which fitted him well with their leader. Seba's instincts proved correct, and on one of their first missions together they sank an 8,000-ton Japanese transport ship, an auspicious start which won all the crew air medals and did much to solidify their confidence in each other. They deployed to Port Moresby in New Guinea, where their progress was interrupted by a major Japanese bombing raid on their base at Milne Bay that destroyed a number of their precious supply of aircraft. Thanks to that and the sickness that had been ravaging the squadron since it moved to Malaria Bay, they were moved away from the combat zone back to Australia. Back in civilization, the men got away from tents, away from air raids and sickness, food from barrels, showers under oil drums, insects and rats. Some got to Sydney and the beach. By the time their leave was over, they were rejuvenated. Jay was now the squadron executive officer, and he was looking for an aircraft that the eager beavers could call their own. He found it in a corner of the airfield, old 666. Shunned by the other crews, this would be the perfect machine to adopt and bring into the loving fold of his crew. It was a photo-reconnaissance version of the B-17, and he had some ideas on how to adapt it for the sort of mission he was likely to fly. Handymen all, the beavers worked on the plane largely on their own, officers and enlisted men together, for the next two months in their spare time, with some help from the ground crews. They scrounged from other planes to replace the old rattly engines with new ones, and stripped out over £2,000 of parts and armour they didn't want, like cartridge belts and ammunition feed equipment. They'd feed them in directly from boxes of two fifty, fifty calibre rounds set beneath the guns. Photographic mapping required straight-and-level flight for an extended period, allowing for no evasive manoeuvres. For Zima's crew, then, it was all about speed and being able to defend themselves, so the beavers made sure they had plenty to defend themselves with. When they were finally done with old 666, they had given the name Flying Fortress a new meaning. The plane bristled with 16 50 caliber guns, including twin 50s in the radio hatch as well as the waist, plus a single 50 Jay had installed on the bombardier's deck through the nose cone just for him to fire. Then came the mission that made all the work they'd done worthwhile. The crew were asked to fly a solo 1,200-mile, 1,900-kilometre round-trip photo-mapping mission of the western coast of Bougainville, a vital task before any invasion could be considered. It was presented as a volunteer mission because the extended mapping run would require straight and level flight for up to 22 minutes deep through hostile territory in broad daylight. The eager beavers were, of course, first in the queue. It took two months before the weather was suitable and then, the day before, an extra task was added on. 
Command wanted a recon of the Japanese airstrip at Buka, a small island off the northern tip of Bougainville. Zima realised that it was almost guaranteed to wake up any Japanese fighters based there and declined to take the additional risk. Again, as they were taxiing out, the request was made and again Zima refused. He was still intent on ignoring the order when he set the flying fortress to head north by northeast shortly after 4am the next morning. It struck him, not for the first time, how difficult it was to target even familiar islands over dark stretches of the featureless Pacific Ocean. Every one of his crew recognised the importance of this mission as the next step to the Southwest Pacific Campaign yet flying over so great an expanse made them feel lonely and small. Three hours later, a thin sliver of sun appeared in the east just as Bougainville's coastline came into view, a finger of land surrounded by glistening dark waters. Zima looked at his watch, thirty minutes ahead of schedule. It would still be another thirty to forty-five minutes before the light would be strong enough to provide the proper exposure for the camera's infrared filters. He mulled his options over in his mind and thought again at command's extra request, the recce of the airstrip. It niggled him that he had had to refuse. He turned on the intercom and spoke to his crew, laying out their options. He could turn old 666 northwest and kill the extra time out over the Solomon Sea, safe. Or he could set a course due north and arrive over Buka Passage just as the sun was high enough to photograph the Japanese airfield before heading on to their main objective. As top turret gunner Johnny Abel later explained, We thought so much of Captain Zima and had such trust in him and his ability that we didn't give a damn where we went, just so long as he wanted to go there. Anything okay by him was okay by us. Or, as Zima interpreted the collective response from his crew that morning, Oh, what the hell, let's take their goddamn reconnaissance photos. We've done it before. Zima lined up old 666 and ran over the airfield at 25,000 feet. In the back, the cameras were whirring away, capturing images of the ground below. He judged that, at his best speed, by the time the Japanese got airborne and climbed up to his altitude, he would be safely past. His belly gunner, Dillman, broke the bad news. They had already been spotted, and the fighters below were starting their engines. It took a long minute before they could turn and line up for their run down the coast. As they did, Zima got the word that about twenty fighters had been taking off below them. He wiped his brow and held the B-17 on course, the camera's intervalometer ticking away in the cockpit. The tail gunner reported seeing more fighters getting airborne from Bougainville's main airfield when Zima spotted the first wave of green zeros climbing and circling around old 666 before closing in and then swerving away as the B-17's formidable firepower drove them off. 
they circled around to make a frontal attack where the bomber was most vulnerable. The vibration and noise from the cannons in the aircraft was deafening, and a zero span away, but then a Japanese 20mm shell burst through the nose, exploding in the cockpit. The force blew Sarnowski, the bombardier front gunner, back 15 feet, and Johnston, the navigator, off his chair. When he recovered, he grabbed Sarnowski and tried to treat his wounds, covering them with sulphur powder, but he had a rip in his neck and a big hole in his side. I'm all right, Sarnowski managed to say. Don't worry about me, as he crawled back to his guns, leaving a trail of blood from his wounds. Another zero was coming, and Zima lined up the B-17 and fired the gun that they had mounted in the nose, and the top turret joined in, but they were hit again, with the instrument panel exploding in front of him, and his rudder bar was blown away from his feet as more control cables were cut. Four cannon shells had entered the cockpit. The windshield was intact, but windows and the aircraft's skin on the left side had completely disappeared. When the shock wore off, Zima felt the fire of pain grow in his legs, which were sliced and burned like bacon, whilst his left leg was broken. His arms had been peppered by shrapnel and an artery spurted with each beat of his heart. Beside him, his co-pilot, who had slumped over, lifted his head and groaned. The intercom had failed, plus the oxygen and hydraulic systems had been hit, so Zima told him to crawl back and get a damage report. Zima had just a few instruments left, the manifold pressure gauges and a compass. There was a fire from the oxygen system which three of the crew had to tackle with rags and their bare hands, leaving them badly burnt. With no oxygen available, Zima had to get down, so he put the B-17 into a steep dive until the rivets were rattling, until he estimated that he was low enough to breathe. The Zeros followed them down, the tail gunner counting at least 17 the fighter swung in at an alarming rate and riddled the fuselage with machine-gun fire, flashing past so close that they almost hit them, but again and again they fought them off. In the front, Zima's hands were bloody and kept slipping from the controls and his legs felt numb in the icy wind. His co-pilot was treating the other injured crew and kept coming back to plead with Zima to let him treat his wounds, but he refused, even though his boots had filled up with blood. After 40 minutes of attacks, the Japanese fighters, low on fuel and ammunition, eventually began to peel away, and the eager beavers began their long return journey. Zima considered his options. He could ditch, but the boys needed medical care, and he was desperate to bring the precious film that had cost them so much back home. Even if he could keep old 666 flying for another four hours, he could never be able to clear the Owen Stanley mountain range that lay between him and their base. Their only hope was a grass strip in the jungle at Dobadura, 90 miles east of Port Moresby. 
Behind him in the fuselage it was a carnage of spent ammunition cases, burnt out barrels, blood and bandages. Zima was getting worse and eventually Britain, his co-pilot, took over when they spotted the lush coastline of Dobodura. The airfield was only 25 miles away. He lined the crippled B-17 up and without flaps, as the palm trees and rickety old control tower flashed past, he knew he was coming in fast. They hit the dirt hard, bouncing three times. With no brakes, the end of the runway was coming up fast, so Britain dragged the control wheel over with all his strength, ground looping the B-17 as its left wing dug into the dirt. Eight hours after their departure, they were finally back in friendly arms as they were helped off the aircraft. Zima was falling in and out of consciousness, but finally strong hands lifted him out of his seat. Old 666 had done them proud, getting them home despite five cannon shell hits and 187 holes from the Zero's machine gun. Despite all the damage, only four of the crew were wounded, but sadly there was also one death, that of Joe Sarnowski. Zima awoke in a small field hospital where the doctors had removed nearly 150 pieces of shrapnel and various bits of old 666 from his legs, arms and torso. Fourteen days later, the invasion of Bougainville began. For their valour, the newly promoted Major J. Zima and Joe Sarnowski were awarded the Medal of Honour. The seven other crewmen were each awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the nation's second highest military commendation for heroism. This gave old 666's crew the distinction of becoming and remaining the most highly decorated combat crew in American military service, having flown the most highly decorated single air mission. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. You can Find out all about that podcast at airlinepilotguide.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales, then why not help us out by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.